Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den franske filosof Jacques Rancière, som efterhånden er blevet en levende legende inden for venstrefløjstænkning og fransk tænkning om kunst og politik i det hele taget. Jacques Rancière har en fantastisk historie. Han er født i Algeriet i 1940, dengang Algeriet var en del af Frankrig og ikke bare en koloniseret stat, men faktisk hørte under det franske indrigsministerium. Som barn flyttede han til Marseille, inden han som ung kom til Paris, hvor han blev en del af en af de allervigtigste studiekredse i 1960'ernes Frankrig overhovedet. Han studerede nemlig sammen med andre, der siden skulle blive berømte filosofer, som for eksempel Etienne Balibar, under Louis Althusser, som var en af sin tids største marxistiske intellektuelle i Paris. De studerede Karl Marx, og denne studiegruppe under ledelse af Althusser udgav en bog, der skulle blive enormt indflydelsesrig, nemlig At læse kapitalen, Lire le Capital, som den hed. Den bog udkom i 1965. På det tidspunkt var Jacques Rancière overbevist om, at han tilhørte en lille kreds af intellektuelle i verden, som havde gennemskuet kapitalismens udbytningsmekanismer, og fra nu af galt det i første omgang om at overbevise de andre studerende om, at det var det, der var det store problem i verden. Og derefter var det arbejderklassen, der skulle oplyses om kapitalismens udbytningsmekanismer. De skulle oplyses om den form for nedværdigelse, som de var udsat for. Det var den meget, meget unge Jacques projekt. Men så kom ungdomsoprøret i 1968, og ungdomsoprøret i Paris var ikke bare et opgør med borgerlig seksualmoral og småborgerlige forestillinger om, hvordan livet skulle indrettes. Det var også et opgør med forestillingen om professoren, som den, der skulle forklare andre, hvordan verden hænger sammen, og et opgør med forestillingen om videnskaben som noget, der havde sandheden om hele samfundet. Så da Jacques Rancière, som på daværende tidspunkt var blevet 28 år, så ungdomsoprøret udspille sig, blev han også bevidst om, at det der med at tro, at man havde sandheden på vegne af alle andre, og det der med at tro, at man havde videnskaben på sin side, og nu skulle de andre bare oplyse sig, så ville de handle, det holdt simpelthen ikke. Det var det, som ungdomsoprøret for ham var et opgør imod. Derefter begyndte Jacques Rancière i 70'erne at prøve at finde andre veje ind i venstreorienteret tænkning og andre veje til frigørelse. Frigørelse er og var hovedmotivet i Jacques Ranciers tænkning. Men i stedet for, at det var de få, der skulle frigøre de mange, så blev han i løbet af 70'erne overvist om, at alle skulle frigøre hinanden i fællesskab. At grundlæggende, så er vi alle sammen lige i intelligens. Og frigørelse starter med antagelsen om, at du kan tænke selv, og jeg kan tænke selv, så jeg skal ikke være din lærer. Han forklarede det sådan, at han gjorde op med pædagogen som frigørelsens mester. Jacques Rancière gik i 1970'erne også i gang med at studere arkiverne for at finde ud af, hvad arbejderne i 1800-tallets Paris egentlig tænkte. De var eksempel på nogen, der faktisk havde frigjort sig. De var eksempel på en vellykket frigørelsesbevægelse, og der var ikke nogen, der havde fortalt dem om kapitalismens udbytningsmekanismer til at starte med. Så Jacques Rancière han var optaget af, hvad var det for en bevidsthed, de arbejdere havde? Hvad var det, de tænkte, og hvordan var det, de ville være fri? Hvad var frigørelsens mål for dem, og hvad var frigørelsens form? Så han satte sig ned og studerede de tekster, de havde skrevet, de breve, de havde skrevet. Nogle af dem havde også skrevet digte. 
Og det blev en bevidsthedsudvidende oplevelse for ham. For det gik op for ham, at arbejderne drømte ikke bare om bedre løn, lavere arbejdstid, flere rettigheder. De drømte ikke om at blive frigjort som arbejdere til bedre vilkår. De drømte om at blive frigjort fra den eksistens, hvor de kun var arbejdere. De drømte om natten, om at blive lyttet til, om at blive set til nogen, der forstod verden, om at blive hørt til nogen, der kunne argumentere, om at blive forstået som nogen, der rent faktisk kunne digte selv. Det var det, der gik op for Jacques Rangière, da han studerede arbejderens analer, og så udgav han sin absolut vigtigste bog, det hedder La Nuit des Proletaires, Proletarenes Nat. Og meningen med, at den hedder Proletarenes Nat, den er selvfølgelig, at den tager udgangspunkt i det, proletarerne tænkte, skrev og drømte om, om natten. Og Jacques Rangière sagde, det er der, frigørelsen finder sted. Jacques Rangière har haft enormt stor betydning for generationer af venstreorienterede, der har bevæget sig fra en eller anden forestilling om kommunisme, det hele handler om materiel omfordeling, til en eller anden forestilling om demokrati. Alle har ret til at bestemme. Ingen skal finde sig i at få at vide, at de ikke kan bestemme selv. Hans tænkning er, som jeg sagde, en frigørelsestænkning, der går ud fra, hvordan man frigør sig i de enkelte situationer, og tror på, at hvis man frigør sig i de enkelte situationer, vil man også være klar til frigørelse i de store historiske begivenheder. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Copenhagen and especially good evening to you Jacques Rangier who's with us from Paris. Good evening. And thank you so very much for for taking your time. A lot of us have been reading your your work for decades actually and you've been a great inspiration. Jeg har været optaget af Jacques Rangier i mange år siden jeg læste Had til demokratiet og jeg har været nysgerrig på hvordan han så sin egen historie, hvordan han så sin egen dannelse. Og jeg har været nysgerrig på, hvordan man, når man har været aktiv i 50 år, bliver ved med at tro på venstrefløjskampen, bliver ved med at tro på frigørelsen. Og jeg har været meget spændt på at tale med ham om netop det. Men det er klart, jeg kan ikke tale med Jacques Rangier, uden også at tale med ham om krigen. Fordi Jacques Rangier har også deltaget i antikrigsdemonstrationer i 60'erne, imod Frankrigs krig, imod Algeriet, der ville være uafhængig. Han har deltaget i demonstrationer i 1970'erne imod Amerikas krig i Vietnam. Han er også en del af en antikrigsbevægelse, og det er helt grundlæggende for hans tænkning, at der ikke bare findes få, der regerer, og mange, der bliver regeret over, at alle skal være deltagere. Så jeg er nysgerrig på at høre, hvad Jacques Rangier tænker om den situation, vi står i i dag med Ruslands invasion af Ukraine, med den massive mobilisering, men samtidig også den massive konsensus om, at Vesten ikke skal involveres militært. Jeg er spændt på at høre, hvad han tænker, der er vores rolle. Jeg er spændt på at høre, hvad han tror, de intellektuelle kan, og hvad vi kan som demonstranter, og i det hele taget som borgere, der gerne vil gøre hinanden fri, når der nu igen er krig i Europa. Alt det kommer vi ind på i den samtale, der følger nu. At the center of, of your work, there, there is the, your studies of the workers' archives in the 1900, which is uh, which is very important for, for your work and for, for the understanding of, of emancipation. And I think it's important for us too, because we tend to think of the workers' movement as a social protest, workers gathering to demand rights and better working condition as a material project. But you found out that it was not just about that. What was it that you discovered in the workers' archives that was so important? 
uh, what I discovered is that, you know, social protest is not only a protest, you know, about low salary or about working conditions. It's a, it's a protest against the whole, whole form of life, the whole form of life, you know. So what, what I discovered, what I discovered, for instance, when I wrote uh, pamphlets, you know, was a kind of desire to make arguments, you know, in, in, in a state of equality, not only, not only protest, not only, you know, struggle, etc., but really being, uh, being treated as a person who has the capacity, the capacity of speaking, the capacity of argumenting, of understanding, etc., you know. And when I wrote, uh, let us say, the kind of private archives, you know, letters, journals, etc., what I discovered was the same thing. It was not only a question of salaries, not only a question of working conditions. It, it, it was really a question of life, of life itself. Uh, this is why, this is why I, uh, I, I gave the title, the title of, uh, to, to the book, you know, the, in, in French, you know, La Nuit des Proletaires. It, in English, it was first the Nights of Labor and after proletarian nights, you know, because the, 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 the social question is not only a question of material conditions, it's how you, how you live, in, in what space you live, in what time you live, how people speak to you, how people see you, you know, what kind of, what kind of aspiration you, know, can, you, you can have, you know, what, it, it is about all, about all this, about, and mainly about time, you know, and uh, what, what was very important is precisely that emancipation meant getting out of this circle, you know, on, on, on the day you, you work, on the night you rest, you know, and day after day, it's always the same process, you know. And so well, what I discovered is, well, an, an aspiration to get out of this circle, you know, to have a kind of, well, another experience of time, another experience of life a desire to participate in all forms of experience, to participate in, well, in poetry, in poetry, in philosophy, in intellectual life, you know. Well, because there was this kind of division, you know, some people are supposed to, to work and other people are supposed to, to think, you know. And, well, there was uh, the will to break that, that circle. And I think this is what is, what is, what is fundamental. The night of labors means at a certain moment, some workers decide to break, to break the circle. They decide not, not to sleep at night, but go, but go on, go on thinking, go on discussing, go on reading and, and, and writing. You know. And this is fundamentally what I discovered you know, in those archives. You'd been, at the time, part of Lille La Capitale project under the direction of Louis Althusser, who's quite famous here as, as well, and I think with Etienne Baliba, who has uh, who has re readers here as well. So that was part of, of, of your intellectual formation. What did this discovery mean to you in terms of your own thinking? Well, you know, I, so I'm I, as a student, you know, so I've been a young Althusserian, meaning a young student, you know, thinking he knows he knows the theory, you know, he knows Marxism, you know, he knows he knows what what are the weapons that the workers might use to to, to, to be free to emancipate themselves. And there was in, uh, well, when, you, when I was a student, you know, of Althusser, I was 22, 20, 22, 24, you know, we have the science and, and people need the science, you know, and we know how to fight against ideology and ideologies is a terrible thing, you know. And, and so, well, my brother, there was this, this idea that we had the task, you know, 
first, you know, among students, you know, to emancipate students, you know, from their ideology of freedom and things like that, you know, and, and revolt and rebellion, you know, and become and become students of Marxism, you know, and, and act as conscious people, etc. Well, we had uh, this idea, of course, uh, there was the break of, of 68, you know, because, uh, well, the same students, you know, against, against whom we had struggled, you know, because we thought, oh, there, it was it is only petty bourgeois ideology, uh, something horrible, you know, but at the same time, they were able, they were able to create this, this uh, huge subversion, you know, of the of a whole society, you know. So that was that was the break. The idea that there is something wrong with science, you know, and there is something wrong with the politics of science. So this also, um, also in, in several of your books, you're writing about the the position of the intellectual and the role of 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 of, of, of the intellectual. This is part part of uh, of le spectateur émancipé as well that you're criticizing uh, the critical theory that that you grew up. How did, did this change your own understanding of yourself as a philosopher and an intellectual? I don't know exactly well, uh, you know, how to, to design to design it myself. You know, it's not a problem whether I am a, an intellectual, a philosopher, a, a historian. Or, well, I would say uh, basically I'm a searcher. And well, um, what was important for, for me, you know, and what, what I think it was one of the results of, of uh, 68, you know, is the possibility to take a distance with our view of ourselves, you know, as people who know, as people who must teach other people, you know. I think for, for me, it was a kind of distance from the position of the, of the intellectual, you know. I don't, like, uh, I don't like this word because this word supposes that, supposes that there are some people, you know, who are more intelligent than others, who, 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 who know, who understand, and of course, others don't understand, etc. And well, uh, what I did all my life, you know, in the 70s, well, was precisely, um, you know, really brushing aside this position of the intellectual, the position of the one who knows. I decided in, in a certain sense, you know, to, to, to be a student of my life, you know, and a student is precisely somebody somebody who, who ignores, who don't who doesn't know, doesn't doesn't know yet, you know. <laughs> and well, this um, this was very important for, for, for me, you know. Well, to to question the position of the one who knows in politics, but also in also in art, you know, because when in uh, the image spectator, the, the question is about the position of the of the artist who thinks that he knows he knows about social uh, social reality, and of course, uh, uh, of course, uh, the um, the normal people do, don't know. And so they have to create works that make people, uh, you know, become conscious, you know, etc. And well, for me, there, there was a kind of break at a, at a certain moment, you know, a break with the position of the pedagogue, of the pedagogue, I would say. The idea that subversion is not a matter of, not a matter of knowledge, it is a matter of knowledge, but there is no direct, uh, uh, you know, consequence from, uh, from knowledge, from knowledge to action, you know, and the fact is that what so many people know, know everything about, um, about exploitation, about domination, about the plus value, about how capitalism works, etc. Et well, uh, I think dozens of generations, you know, have known everything, you know, about <laughs> all this, you know, and, and at, the, at the same time, you can, you can can see in what uh, in what uh, state we are now. <laughs> There's a phrase in the book that you say it's not about understanding the mechanism that you're exploited by, 
but it's about shaping a collective body that is dedicated to something else than just being ruled over. What is this process of shaping a collective body in the movement? I don't think I don't think uh, I, I was speaking of a collective body in in this uh, well in this passage you know well it was about you know emancipation first as a task of individuals what fascinated me in in those archives was uh, well the idea that emancipation must start you know individuals themselves you know behave behave in the world in in because there, there was this idea, you know, that being a worker means a certain way of speaking, a certain way of a certain way of behaving, a certain way of seeing, etc. You know, and the first the first thing, you know, not not is not to, to to shape a collective body. You know, I don't know exactly what it means, but first, <laughs> you know, for, for the workers, for, for for those who try to do so to do something, you know, in a collective. Uh, try to change <clears throat> their own way of being in the world. And for instance, it, it was uh, the importance of the question of language, you know, not speaking the language of the workers, you know, because at, at, at that moment, you know, all the intellectuals and the writers, you know, asked, asked the, the workers, you know, to speak the language of workers. And they didn't <laughs> want to speak the language of workers. No, they, they wanted to speak the language of, of intellectuals, the language of poets, you know, because they wanted to be really participants in in all forms, all forms of experience, and not only, you know, in the experience of the worker in the in a given society, you know. So it's not a matter of shaping a collective body, but it's a matter of gathering on the basis, you know, of this common desire to get out of a certain, not only of a certain condition, but of a certain way of life. Yeah, and I think I was doing my own English translation of a Danish translation of the French. So I think that's what the, got the what, what what got the terms wrong. There is another point in 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 this understanding is that when you when you have theory of recognition, you say, well, I want to be recognized for who I am in this order, and you have a lot of protest movement saying, well, I want to be recognized for who I am in for my own identity in this order. But you have another way of putting it is that you want to be you want to be recognized for who you could be and not who you are in this order. You want to be recognized as a whole human being and, and not only to be recognized as as a worker, as a worker, as a black, as a woman, uh, as you know, as a member of such of such community. You know? And it's true that the, the, the very word of recognition, recognition is is ambiguous, is ambiguous because yes, certainly there is this. This desire, you know, this desire precisely for people who are on, in the bottom of society, you know, the, de the desire to be treated, you know, as equal human beings, you know, and, and, and well, this is what uh, when I took up, you know, the kind of the, the narration of the, the of the plebeians on the on, on the Aventine, you know, the, the problem is whether they are or not speaking beings, you know, and and and, and these all the questions. So. It is true, but there is this desire for recognition, but not recognition, you know, as workers, as women, as homosexuals, etc., etc. No, recognize, you know, as being in this certain identity at the same time, recognize as a, as a full human uh, human being, you know, and so. Uh, 
for me, what, what is important, you know, is this recognition of a, of a common capacity, you know, of, of an equal, of an equal intelligence, you know, and not only recognition of the intelligence of the person who, who is member of, of this or that, or that community. So, uh, in, in the case of the workers, you know, I studied, you know, well, they wanted to be recognized as being able, being able to, to discuss, to discuss with the others, to discuss with their employers, to discuss with, with the state, to discuss with the bourgeois, etc., and the intellectuals and, and, and writers, etc. Well, but at the same time, you know, the question is, was not, you know, this is my identity and I want you to recognize my identity. No, and in a way, I said it's a process of disidentification, you know, because being a worker, being a woman, for instance, in a certain society means occupying kind of a flow of, of subaltern condition. And so uh, the, the question is not to be recognized, you know, in this subaltern condition, not but, but to, to be recognized as an equal human being. You've studied this workers' movement and seen movement. And I think one movement that we in Denmark have been very fascinated by, but found a little difficult to understand is the Le Chien the Yellow Vest movement. For a certain point, it's obvious they have been invisible and they want to be seen, so they carry this yellow vest. But, you know, from abroad, it's always difficult. Is this the left-wing movement? Is it a right-wing movement? Is it a protest movement? How do you see this movement as compared to the movement that you studied? Well, of course, um, uh, well, in a way, there is a, there is a, certain, a certain resemblance because I studied, I would say that, that I studied workers, you know, before what is called the workers' movement, you know, before the, the big organizations, parties and unions, etc. And in a way, we are now, I think, in the same situation, you know, as the, the workers that, I, that, that I, I studied, you know, because, well, there is this kind of, of dissolution of the, of the working class as a whole. And so, you know, you cannot have any more, you know, uh, movements based on a, a class identity, you know. And, and now it's true that, you know, those who gathered, those who gathered, those who gathered you know, on the roundabout, run, run but also those who gathered on the, on the squares, on the parks, you know, in the, in the fine movements, are individuals. And individuals that who try to recreate some kind of community. What is interesting in the case of uh, Yellow Vest, you know, is, well, uh, it was made by people who were totally non-identified, you know. They could not be identified, you know, as workers or, no, no. Precisely, you know, they don't belong anymore to a kind of class or class organization. But at the same time, many of, of them, in fact, were before, you know, members of unions, for instance, you know. But what, what is interesting, you know, is that it was a movement of people who normally are supposed, you know, to do nothing, you know, to do nothing, to, to, to do the same thing, you know, day, uh, day after day, you know. And, and, and this is also this, uh, kind of, uh, for, for, for me, a flightness, you know, with the workers that I, that I studied, you know. And, and it's true, you know, that, that they were not, you know, uh, in possession of a kind of clear knowledge of society, but perfectly clear, you know. And so they were able to vote for left parties, right, right parties, <laughs> far left parties, far right parties, you know. Because in a way, it was a kind of protest, not, not only of people who want, want to be visible, you know. <laughs> the question is not, is not being visible, you know. But they want, they want that the form of life, you know, that they live, you know. Uh, be visible as 
Well, as bad life, you know, as a life that is not worth living, you know, because they are supposed to be what is called in French, la majorité silencieuse, you know, the silent majority. So people who are supposed precisely, you know, uh, to... To, to support to support the government to support you know uh, Macron or, or Macron or other or, or other leaders you know and at a certain moment you know they, they became visible they, they became visible to say the life we are living you know the life what what is lived but by so many people who are anonymous people just like us is not a life that is that is anymore anymore tolerable so I think this is. A, this is the point. And of course, uh, there is this kind of ambiguity, you know, they are not clearly identified socially or politically. But I think it's something important precisely because they are people who normally, you know, don't protest, you know, <laughs> don't, don't protest, you know, and, and at just a moment, you know, it was uh, that, that protest coming from people from below, from, from people entirely anonymous, you know, and, and for me, it's interesting. And of course, it's not clear, it's not clear, you know, for seen from Denmark, but it's not, it's not clear, you know, seen from, from Paris too, you know. <laughs> I think to a certain extent, one could say that the, these are people who are not heard and not seen, and they manage to speak up and gain presence and speak as kind of intellectuals without belonging to a party. So they were kind of, validating an equality of intelligence. They were showing we can be heard and we can act and people didn't understand it. So, you know, people were trying to understand. So you could say that it was um, a successful movement. It was movement that really changed the way people look at, at, at the country they live in. On the other hand, you could also say, well, they didn't manage big reformation of French society the equality is still the same. The rich are still enormously rich. There's no redistribution of power. How, how should we understand this? I think it is the same. You know, it, it is the same for all movements, and it's the same for all parties. It is the same. You know, well, it is the same way with, uh, with with the action with, with the action of left uh, of left organization. You know, and uh, because who, what party has really changed? The, the, the way in which we live, you know, but, but, but the problem, and of course, the Yellow Vest had not, you know, changed distribution of wealth in France, but who, who did it, you know, no leftist party, you know, ever did it. And, and we, had a, we had socialist government, you know, and, and they came with, oh, the program, you know, of big reformation, you know, and, and now it will be with the end of capitalism, you know, et cetera. But, well, <laughs> it, was, it was just the contrary. And this is also why we have a yellow vest and such movements, you know, because we have been fooled, you know, by, by left parties. Um, now, that, now we, you know, we have been from Denmark and I think from mo most of the world, we've been reading a lot of uh, theory, philosophy, sociology from France. That is what you could call critical theories and leftist mm -hmm. theories. So we gain a lot of inspiration from France on the left, all over, I think even from America to, mm -hmm. to here. And then we look at France and you have a presidential election in what, uh, three or four weeks. And it seems that the left is almost obliterated in France. Why, why how do you explain that? Well, uh, you, you, you know, we had, uh, so uh, we had, uh, 
a socialist party, socialist party, you know, what the possibility, what the possibility to change things, you know, if they wanted to do so. And well, and they made, uh, you know, big promises, you know, and finally they did exactly the contrary, you know, of their, of their promises, you know. So um, in France now, I don't know what, I don't know what is the situation, you know, in Denmark, but for, 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 a long, for a long time, you know, socialist, socialist leaders, you know, have shared the same view of society as, 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 right, as right leaders, you know. They have um, the same kind of ideology of consensus, which meant, you know, that we cannot change anything because of the global market, because of economic necessity, and, and we, can, we can just, you know, try to, to adapt, to adapt, you know, to the situation of the world. And well, and so they, they, they promised, you know, socialism, you know, and, and now they are totally abiding to the law of the market, and, and not the law of the market in general, but the law of, of absolute capitalism, you know, the, which means the empire of capitalism on all forms of life and all, on all, all aspects of our life, you know. So there is, there is this big, this big treasure, you know, from this big betrayal, betrayal, you know, from, from, from the left, you know. And it's, it, it has become, it has become very, very difficult. It has become very difficult. And really to, to revive socialism to, to revive you know left left politics left politics uh, in, in in france you know and well uh, at the same time i think well there is a kind of ideology of resentment you know but i think this is important which is very, this is very important you know uh, i think what really nurtures you know the power of the far right in france in france now is well uh, this uh, this feeling of resentment in a way, uh, the, 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 the feeling of importance, you know, and well, the, the ideology of the far right, you know, give a kind of possibility to compensate, you know, uh, from this feeling of, of importance. We, we can do something. Well, the, the problem is now, you know, uh, all our governments, you know, are uh, agree, agree that all they have to do is the kind of gestion, you know, of the capitalist, of, capit of capitalism, you know, in their own country, you know. And well, so, so so there is no difference between the right and left in, in a sense. And you must remember that Macron was supposed to be precisely neither neither left, no, no right, no, just just government, just power, you know. And and this is a, this is the point. So I think the if all classical politicians, you know, have the same politics, you know, the only difference, the only difference, you know, on, on which we can play is about issues of national identity of immigration and so on because well we, we can say that uh, capitalism uh, absolute capitalism means means two things at the same time it means a free circulation of capital okay but at the same time there is a circulation of all those people you know, all those people <laughs> who, who have to leave who have to leave their country because they can no they can no more live you know and well and so there is a kind of uh, i would say of uh, of distribution of roles, you know, uh, meaning that right and left, you know, are really dealing with the circulation of capital, and and they left and they leave the issue of circulation of people to the far right, you know, and and of course, <laughs> well, uh, uh, it is the only power, you know, it's the only power that is left to that is left to people. You know? We have no power, you know, about the decisions of our government. But we have the power to say that we don't like the we don't like the immigrants, we don't like the black, we don't like the Muslims, etc. That's the point, you know. 
I don't think, you know, that it's, that it is a kind of visceral reaction, you know, from, from people. No, but it is the only thing that is left to them, you know, in a way. <laughs> and, I want to ask you also, I'm making a little jump here about the situation in Ukraine and what is happening yeah. uh, in the world uh, at, at the moment. You've seen a lot through through your life. You've been through some historical phases and some big change. You've just published a book about the Tronde Glorieuse. This uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, do you experience this as a truly historic event, as reordering the way we see the world? No, I don't think it's something totally new. In a way, it's still a continuation of the Cold War, you know, because the fact is that the Cold War, the Cold War has not disappeared, you know, with the end of the Soviet Union, you know. And if you think, for instance, of what happened in the Middle East, you know, Well, the, the way in which the Americans, uh, NATO, and, and the Russians, you know, intervened, intervened the Middle West, you know, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq, or in, in, in Syria. Well, it was still a kind of continuation of the situation that had been created by the Cold War, you know. In a way, everything started with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, you know. And, and after, after the Americans, you know, giving weapons to the to the Taliban's, etc. Well, I think we are still, in a sense, in a form of continuation of the Cold War. And of course, it may it may look a bit nonsensical because there is no more, there is no communism, there is no economic alternative. Well, precisely, I think when when there is no economic alternative, no social alternative, well, the only alternative is politics of power. You know. <laughs> Have you been surprised because the, the other um, events that you referred to, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, uh, we've been uh, responding with military interventions from the West. Uh, and, and this time we are not, the West is not responding by military intervention. They're responding by massive economic sanctions. And this is like economic warfare. They're kind of turning the economic system into a, a war machine. What do you think of this way of responding? Well, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've, I'm not the president of France. I'm not, I mean, I know I've, I've no, I've no public responsibility. I can, I can just, you know, well, uh, look at what, uh, what happens. It, it is clear, you know, that well, you can send, uh, you can send troops, you know, well, uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in Libya, uh, but not the same in Russia. But, but it, it's very, it's very clear, you know. And so I think it is well. Probably it uh, it is the, the only the only weapon, you know. And, and I, I will not say, oh, it's fantastic. I approve it. No, but well, I think that from the point of view of our governments, it is it is the, the only the only way. Are you concerned that this will cause you know these economic sanctions? And now we're mobilizing, and everybody wants to do everything they can. But we don't know whether it will damage a lot of people and people in this global south will be hit by the consequences of the sanction. Are you concerned that we're just mobilizing now and something that will cause tremendous harm to, to poor people all over the world afterwards? Well, yes, the problem is that all solutions, all solutions to this kind of conflicts, you know, really cause a lot of harms to, 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 to poor people. And of course, they are the first, they are the first to, to suffer. They are the first to suffer if you send troops, if they are the first to suffer, you know, if you, well, with these economic, economic sanctions, you know. Well, and of course, it's, it's not something that is, well, 
but but we accept but we accept you know well uh, with pleasure but the question is really now what can we do you know there was a time where where we can we as citizens are normal and normal individuals you know well ask our ask our governments you know when, when there was a war in Algeria, the war in, in, in Vietnam, you know. So there was this kind of discussion because our governments were the aggressors and we could, of course, stand by, 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 by the victims of the aggression. This is, not, this, is no, this is no more the case, you know. Well, I think uh, there is something that has changed uh, perhaps uh, uh, with, with Yugoslavia, you know, because, uh, because I remember my generation, you know, in the case of Yugoslavia, we are asking our governments, well, to act, to act against Serbia, to act against, you know, so Serbia as, uh, you know, as an oppressive power, you know. And, and of course, there was a kind of turning point because, because before, you know, we are asking, we were asking our governments, you know, to stop, to stop, you know, making war in Algeria, in Vietnam, etc. And at a certain point, you ask them to do something for Bosnia, you know, but asking them to do something for, for, for Bosnia uh, objectively meant asking them to make some forms of aggression against, against Serbia. And I think this was a kind of, of turning point and, uh, and now, and after that, you know, we we did not exactly know, you know what to think, you know, of the uh, of what happened, what happened in Iraq, what happened in Afghanistan, what happened in Afghanistan, you know. And I think we are in this situation. We can no more, you know, tell our government stop, stop war. You you can we cannot, you know, ask them do make war. So what can what can we what can we do? We are spectators. That's a, it, it's a pity, but uh, we, we are spectators. And I think this also. When I was growing up in the seventies, mm -hmm. I was uh, always thinking that whatever happened, it would be America's responsibility to a certain mm -hmm. extent. I thought that mm -hmm. the West was the strongest power in the world, mm -hmm. that uh, Western capitalism would win. Mm -hmm. And and that it meant that every time I was mad about something, mm -hmm. I could direct my anger against someone in the, in the West, you know, mm -hmm. I could protest. Mm -hmm. And now when I talk to my kids about that, they will say, well, that climate change, it's about what happens in China mm -hmm. and India. And mm -hmm. they, who, who are we to protest about that? Do you think being a citizen in the Western world has changed in the way that when we were growing up, this was where the power was? And now we have Putin and Modi and Bolsonaro and, and people who are outside our, our power. Do you think this changes our way of, of understanding participation? Well, no, I think it uh, it depends on the occasion because, of course, uh, there is by Bolsonaro now, but but uh, there were dictators, you know, dictators <laughs> in Brazil, in Argentina, in Uruguay, in Chile at a certain moment, you know, and uh, well, but, but it is. It, it is true. What is what is true is that there is there is no there is no model. There is no model. There is no there is no no, no country. No no country. You know, no 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 form of power in the world today that we we can really use as a model. And and at the same time, of course, there is a. Uh, this kind of of this of displacement of displacement, uh, of course, with the with the issues of climate change, etc. And it is true that, uh, from the point of view of the younger generation, we 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 are some kind, you know, of of veterans, you know, you know, from uh, from other wars. <laughs> when when I uh, one last question, you've you've been uh, participating in different ways for for several decades now, and. 
when you look back and you see what caused real changes in society, what caused emancipation, and you say, well, it's not the the political parties. Looking back, what do you think has been the transformative uh, events and capacities through through your political life? It's difficult. It's difficult because um, my my own life is one thing, you know. And uh, oh. well, what happened to the world to the world you know, in general is, is, is something quite de- quite different. I think. I think that I have understood something about emancipation, you know, well, in the in 68, in the movements after 68, you know, and, uh, and, and of course, I still I still learn from the, all the movements like the Arab Spring and the, and the, and the, the Occupy movement. So, well, for me, uh, for me, I, I would say that I have really, uh, well, uh, I have been, in a way, confirmed, you know, in my in my idea, you know, that real democracy is only the kind of democracy that that people construct, you know, they, themselves, you know, on on, on definite, you know, in definite uh, situa- situation, you know. So I'm I'm confirmed, you know, and the yeah, but you cannot trust, you know, you cannot trust any power, you cannot trust any, any government, you know. So uh, so in, in a way, I've been confirmed in a kind of let us say anarchist, you know, view of the world. But uh, but I, I don't think that this anarchist view of the world can offer us something, you know, provide us, uh, provide, you know, answers you know, to the situation of the world today. So uh, in a way, I, I, uh, what I, I've learned, you know, to, well, to take a distance, you know, to take a distance with what our governments do, what our parties do. And of course, it's it, it's a kind of it's, it's also a kind of impotence. And so, uh, in a way, but I try, you know, I, I, I try to live with this impotence without resentment, you know, <laughs> without accusing, you know, um, you know, this or that kind of people, you know, to be the cause of the evil. But I think there's in your thinking about the intellectual inequality that equality is at the foundation. Mm. There is something that is potentially liberating in every social situation that I enter. Oh, yes, 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 certainly. Yes, I think there are, well, there are a lot of situations, you know, but we have experienced, you know, during, or during all those years that demonstrate that capacity of everybody, you know, really to think, to think, to, 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 not only to think individually, but to, to think together, to create something, to create movements together. To, well, there is a kind of, of, uh, of awareness of the situation. If you think, for instance, uh, um, what happened uh, precisely concerning ecology and climate change, you know, well, so many people, so many people could have you know, precisely so some, so some forms of action, you know, really important in this or that place, you know. So it is clear, you know, that if you trust the capacity of everybody, why well, perhaps you can change change a lot, you know, the world in which we live. But uh, at the same time, we live in a world which not, is not ruled by the presupposition of equality, but by the presupposition of inequality. This is the point. So, well, uh, as I said, what is possible perhaps now is to create some kind of island where people really practice equality, you know, because it is important that the practice of equality, I cannot, uh, you know, promise uh, that it will be a great world change, you know, from from this point. I want to thank you. And I think that your work is so much about 
practicing equality in every situation. And if you go into that situation, every situation can be liberating. And sometimes, you know, Fridays for Future Ecological Movement started very small. And girls all over the world found out that they were equal in, uh, intellectually with others. So I've been thinking about your, your thinking a lot there. Thank you so much, Jean Concierge, for your work and for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Det var min samtale med Jacques Rancière. I næste uge skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Der taler jeg med den fransk-marokkanske forfatter Leila Slimani som har skrevet en helt fantastisk roman, der hedder De Andres Land. Det er en roman, som på overfladen handler om en fransk kvinde, der flytter til Marokko i 1960'erne, bliver gift med en marokkansk mand, og oplever at være splittet mellem Frankrig og Marokko, ligesom hendes mand er splittet mellem Frankrig, som han har ført 2. verdenskrig fra, og Marokko, som han kommer fra og lever i. Men det er også en historie om krig. Det er en historie om kolonialisme. Det er en historie om magt. Og det er en historie om forbindelsen mellem de store frigørelsesbevægelser og de helt nære frigørelseskampe i vores eget liv. Jeg har fornemmelsen af, at jeg i samtale med Leila Slimani kan komme meget tæt på det, der foregår i Ukraine i øjeblikket, men ved at gå en meget stor omvej. Jeg håber, I vil lytte med i næste uge. Tak for nu.